All right, good morning, Selma Road. It is such a joy to be here, especially on this day in Philadelphia. This is the day. I've been waiting myself months and months for this day. I'm so glad it's finally here. I've been nervous and excited, and finally we made it to this Sunday. Tonight, we will find out. What happened to Jack Pearson and This Is Us? <laughs> I've been... Anyone else glad that finally we're here tonight, that we get that mystery solved? Some of you are giving me looks. Okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I am a New York transplant in Chicago, so I have really nothing to root for these days in either city. And so it's been actually nice to be here the last few days and to see the excitement all over this city. And I am genuinely, genuinely excited for you guys today. I'm even trying to wear green and all of that uh, to support you guys uh, today. All right, I'm, I am rooting for uh, the Eagles along with the rest of America outside of Boston. So um, I'm thankful to be here to share God's word with you this morning. We at Living Hope in Chicago, we greet you and pray for us as we are also your number one fans. Uh, I talk about you and brag about you guys all the time as uh, you guys are like our big brothers and sisters that we look for, like we look up to as we're in our third year as a church plant ourselves. Uh, we are deeply grateful for the partnership we share together in the gospel and I have nothing but the warmest affection and deepest respect uh, for our pastors here, Sibi, Ajay, Benu. And so I'm really, really thankful for the high honor to be here today. Uh, let me pray for us real quick, and uh, we'll dive right into God's word this morning. I pray with me. Our Father, we come from the world this morning under a cloud of many distractions, not even just with sports, but even burdens with family, finances, our fears, our failures, the future, our unbelief, our doubts, our sins, all of that. So all of these clouds keep us from the command that you give us in scripture that says, look unto Jesus. So you must pierce through those clouds this morning, our Lord, so we can see you. We are lost if we cannot see you this morning. And so by the power of your spirit, we pray in the light of your word and with an eye of faith, let us see you, Jesus. It will be this sight of our beloved one that will burn the love of our sin, will heal the wounds of our soul. Him alone can remove our guilt and cover our shame and soften our hard heart and loosen the tight shackles of worldliness, brush away doubt and unbelief and fill our soul with peace that passes understanding, life and joy inexpressible. It is only found, our Lord, in seeing you in tasting you, Jesus, and finding you are good, sweeter than the honey of the world. Our, so, Father, we pray, break through the clouds, help our feeble eyes of our heart uh, to see your Son. And we know you will do better than we even know how to ask. We ask it in his precious name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have heard of the story in Greek mythology of Narcissus. He was so good-looking that the god Nemesis cursed him to fall in love with his own reflection. So if you're familiar with the story, the more Narcissus looked at himself, the smaller he became until he was, there was nothing left but a little white flower, according to the story. 
Uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson writes, Narcissus got smaller and smaller and smaller until there was no narcissist left. And I love this phrase. He says, he had starved to death on a diet of self. Starving to death on a diet of self, I think that is the most accurate diagnosis of the most malignant cancer in our heart today. Uh, one author says, there is in each of us a sickness that vitamins cannot touch, that surgery cannot correct, that the greatest medical minds are clueless as to how to eradicate from our lives. This sickness makes us unpleasant to be around. It robs the joy of the simple pleasures of life. It creates a lethargy such that we cannot do what we want to do. This sickness is the cause of our loss of perspective in life, and it's our, even our ability to know how, to, how we should really live. The sickness... He's referring to his sin. English writer Dorothy Sayers even adds, sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. We often think of sin as isolated choices or actions or things we do rather than who we are. It's a power that seeks to destroy us. It dislocates our soul. It's a poison. It's a disease. And so one of the passages that I often think about that makes me laugh and it makes me cry all at the same time is in front of us this morning in Numbers chapter 11. And if you, uh, if you haven't turned over there yet, Numbers chapter 11 is where we'll be, and then we'll head over to John a little bit later. But Numbers, in Numbers chapter 11, the people of God are rescued by God. They're miraculously saved by God. They're provided by God. They're guided by God. They're cared for by God, only to quickly turn around and reject Him in His goodness. And when I read that, I see, in, I see myself in the mirror, and it's a picture of all of our hearts, and it points us to our need for a Savior, a Savior who comes into our dislocation. The Savior of dislocated souls is the title of the message. Uh, three things I want to quickly look at, and we'll be done. First, uh, signs of the dislocated soul. Numbers 11, 4 to 6. Signs of the dislocated soul. So again, the children of Israel, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, they're in the wilderness, they're headed towards the promised land, and you would think when you've been a slave for 400 plus years and now you are finally freed, that you would be filled with gratitude and you'll be singing and thankful at all the way to Canaan, the land that God had promised them. However, we don't find that at all. We find instead a complaining crowd, because church folk were different. Back then, right? <laughs> and so instead of that, we find that they are angry, they're upset, they're complaining, and this time they are upset about the Lord's cafeteria menu that he has provided for them. So I want to share three signs and symptoms of a dislocated soul. First, we see in them a disordered craving, a disordered craving. Numbers 11 Verse 4, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. So when you see the word rabble, it's actually referring to non-Israelites. A mixed multitude of all nationalities had actually come out of Egypt, not just Jews. Uh, they came out with God's people, but they had never fully assimilated, and they had not completely taken on Israel's values and standards. So they live on the fringe of the camp. Um, and so among them, the rabble... 
there was this strong craving. Literally, it's they, they craved a craving. And then the people of Israel then joined them because grumbling is contagious. If you ever served in the nursery or if you have kids, right, if one toddler melts down, what happens? And it's like all of them, dominoes, right? All of them start to melt down. And so this, there's a strong craving. And often we think of craving, we may think of our stomachs or, and taste buds or even sexuality, but it's really any good desire made into ultimate desires. It's a, they craved a strong craving. Uh, the, when the good desire becomes an ultimate desire, it makes those desires so intense that it clouds your thinking and judgment. And so we all, we all have cravings. Even our fears are cravings. Our fears are cravings of something not to happen. So we want money because we crave or we, we are fearing poverty. We crave approval because we fear rejection. We crave comfort and pleasure because we fear boredom and pain and suffering. We want relief. And sometimes the fear is more pronounced. Other times the desire is more pronounced. So whether fear manifests or uncontrolled craving manifests, they are signs of a dislocated heart. When that desire, a good desire, becomes an ultimate desire, and we start treasuring that more than we treasure God, and it is always, as C.S. Lewis would say, it is never that we have treasured things too much. It is always because we have treasured Christ too little. So there's a disordered craving, and along with that, we notice here, there is a discontentment. Look what they say. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. And, and then in verse 6, our souls are dried up. It says our strength is dried up. Literally, it's our souls are dried up. So do you know what they're saying? They're saying we are dying here. Does anyone notice that we're dying here? We have nothing but this manna. We're feeling faint. We're feeling sick. This isn't enough to sustain us. Our soul is even drying up. Discontentment. Discontentment is the poison that makes us unable to enjoy what is in front of us ever. Unable to ever sit down and just live in the moment and rejoice in what we have. But instead, we find fault with it over and over again. And we say, this isn't enough. This isn't good enough. And so the person with a discontented heart has this attitude that everything that he or she does for God is too much. Everything that God does for him is too little. So they look within themselves and they're like, why did God make me like this? With this personality, they look at their family and they say, why this family? And then the spouse say, why this person and this church and why this job? And over and over again, there's this discontentment. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, shares this New York Times article by John Tierney called Picky, Picky, Picky. It's actually about dating and relationships. And John Tierney says people walk around all the time by what he calls an internal flaw-o-matic. What is a flaw-o-matic? It is a constant pickiness and a flaw-finding with everything. Whether it's art, or restaurants, or career, or friendships, and especially in picking a mate. For example, 
He, says, he recounts the story where he heard one person talking to another about a blind date that he had. So this young man says, well, you know what? It started out great. She opened the door, and she looked fantastic. She had a beautiful face, nice smile, great body. Everything was going fine until she turned around. So he paused ominously, shook his head. What, what happened when she turned around that disgusted you? Chuck, he said sadly. She had dirty elbows. <laughs> and that was that. The guy went through the whole date, disgusted at her dirty elbows. And he's like, this relationship is doomed. So John Tierney says, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way the two of them could work this out. <laughs> right? Some couples therapy, a little soap and water, <laughs> some lotion, maybe you can apply it. <laughs> I don't know. She would love that. <laughs> but he says, then I realized it wouldn't matter. He would just find something else. It's a cosmic flaw o with everything. And it turns on as soon as we wake up and poisons our lives. Our lives. It's this disordered craving that leads to this discontentment. And thirdly, it causes a distorted perspective. Nothing's good enough. Nothing is good enough and you're miserable. So you think about life like that. Look at the Israelites here. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, etc. Our strength is dried up. There's nothing to look at all but this manna. So when they were in Egypt, what did they say? They said, yes, we have lots of food, and it's free, but we're slaves. They didn't pay for any of it. The fish and the leeks, whatever that is, and the lemons and the melons and all of that. Well, it was free, but when they were there, they said, well, it, what good is all this free food? Flawmatic comes on when you're not free. And now they're free, right? They're free. And what are they saying? Well, what good is the freedom if we're going to starve? So when they were back there, they said, out there I could be happy. But right now, this isn't good enough, Flawmatic. And now that they're out here, back there, I could have been happy. But right now, it's not good enough. So they forget the pain of their suffering. They exalt this pleasure. And so I want to give you three distortions that come. Right? The disordered craving comes up when the discontentment sets in. And now you have three distortions that happens with our perspective. One, your heart says, back there. You know what I'm talking about? And I do this a lot. Back there in 1995, I was on fire for the Lord. If I can only get back to 1995, how it used to be. Some nostalgic obsession with the past. All right, so back there. Or your heart says, over there. Over there. If I just have, if I could have that condition, that job, that person, that life, if I had that situation, I could be happy. Look at so-and-so, and then comparisonitis sets in, and social media helps you with that disease, and you're like, that over there, that person. That's always, you look at someone's Instagram life, right, and you're like, that person. 
if I had that life, so you start comparing with someone. You, you don't feel like you measure up or you fit in. And you, the workout crowd over there feels like maybe I should apply for the next season of Biggest Loser, right? The intellectual crowd over there, am I reading the right books? The cool crowd over there, like, I think I, I have all the wrong shoes. Envy fills your heart. Distortion. And envy is when you resent God's goodness to you. You ignore it. And you resent God's goodness to others too. A self-love that leads to self-comparison, that leads to self-hatred. And you feel, this isn't enough. You end up discontent with a distorted perspective. It's over there. So back there, over there, or, your heart says, out there. Out there, in some fantasy, if only things had happened that way. But right now, the way it is right now, it's not good enough. So you imagine something good happening to you out there, somewhere, if I could be happy. What I have right now is not good enough, so look at the flaws. Look at it. Look at what's wrong with it. And some of us sitting here this morning, that is poisoning our marriages because all we see are the flaws. Some of us are so driven in our careers because we just hate the rung of the ladder we're at. It makes some of us critical of people all the time. For others, they can't pick a church out there, back there. It's poisoning our lives. You never sit down. You never enjoy what's in front of you. You can never sit back and just receive and be grateful to one degree or another we are all suffering from this. And you ask yourself, why am I like this all the time? What is wrong with me? So th those are the signs of the dislocated soul. Let me go to the source. What is the source behind this? Why are we like this? I look at verses 6 to 9 here. There's nothing but this manna to look at. So we can paraphrase, paraphrase it probably like they're grumbling something like this. If I see one more piece of manna, I think I'm going to be sick. Okay, Manna, manna, manna. That's all we ever eat anymore. It's boring. It's unattractive. It's tasteless. We want some other kind of food. So they wanted variety in their menu. Now, I'll be honest. Honesty in church this morning. I kind of agreed with them when I first read it. And if you're honest, you're like, uh, I'm kind of like that at home, right? Again, the leftovers <laughs> for another day. I want something new. Something, right? I need some variety in my menu. So I was kind of like, I kind of, I sympathized with them a little bit. Until I read a commentator, Ian Daguid, verses 7 to 9. You notice in 7 to 9, Moses has this little aside here telling you how wonderful manna is. <laughs> it's almost like he's like, wait, in case you didn't know what manna was, let me give you a side note to test the claims here. Lest you feel sympathetic to the Israelites, I feel like he was just talking straight to me. First, he says, the manna was not unattractive. On the contrary, verse 7, that's why he says it looked like delium. Adelium was a prized substance that, that was one of the products of the area immediately surrounding the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2.12. 
The Israelites, he says, did not even have to pay for the manna either. It came down free every night along with the dew. Verse 9. Nor was it boring. Okay. You, it could be prepared in a variety of tasty ways. Ground, that's why he says ground or boiled or baked. Verse 8. So if there was Pinterest, <laughs> you would see there would be tons of Pins? Well, I don't use it. What do you call it? All right. 360 way, five ways to cook manna. And, far, and, 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 and tasteless? What? Far from being tasteless, it was extremely appetizing, verse 8. The NIV's description here, it says, Like something made with olive oil, or even that in the ESV, the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now, you might be like, uh, doesn't sound as mouth-watering as it should. Much better translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, it tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. It may have looked somewhat like porridge, but it actually tasted more like the most delicious donuts. Some of you are still not convinced. Okay. <laughs> Psalm 78, 24 says this was the bread of heaven. This is the original angel food cake right here. <laughs> so Moses' point is this is the food that was not good enough for them. It, it, was, it was everything it, it, that they said they thought it should be, but they, they found fault, fault with it. The flaw of Maddox. So what is the root and the dislocation of this disease that we have? What does it come down to? We don't trust God. We don't think he's out for our best. Look at verse 6. Again, our strength is dried up because we see nothing but this manna. What do they mean? They're saying, because we have nothing but what God has given us, we are drying up. If we take only what God has given us, we're going to dry up. If we rely on only what God has done, if we rely wholly on him, if we center our hearts wholly on him, we are going to die. It won't be enough. The flaw matic meter is actually going off all the time because deep inside, the source of it is that we really don't think God is out for our best. Now, by the way, that is an absolute lie. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 8, when their wilderness wanderings were done, God comes to them and says, actually says to them, during the time in the wilderness, do you know your feet never did swell? Science tells us that our feet swell up when we don't have the proper nutrients. Scurvy, for example, makes your, sweet, your feet swell. You don't have enough vitamin C. So God is coming to them back in Deuteronomy, and he's saying, in spite of what you have said, the manna was enough. You didn't think it was enough, but it was. I fed you on manna. It had every nutrient you needed. Your feet did not swell up. It had all the vitamins you needed. It had everything you needed. A variety of ways to make it. It was tasteful. But you're saying we feel faint. We're drying up. We're suffering, Lord. When they decided the manna wasn't enough, they felt sick. This isn't enough. I'm feeling faint. I'm feeling nauseated. This manna isn't enough. And they kind of talked themselves into this, so they, got, they felt sick. And that's what we do. 
I look at my heart. This, my personality is not enough. There's not enough beauty here in my life. There's not enough success. There's not enough love here. And so you start to talk your way into this, and you start to feel faint. You feel sick. And underneath it all, what, what I'm saying, what we're saying is this. If I just trust God alone, I will dry off. He's not moving fast enough. He's not doing enough. And so I don't trust him. And when you don't trust God, the things you turn to cannot fulfill you the way God is supposed to. So what's God's solution for our dislocation, lastly? How will God deal with this? Let's turn to John 6. And here we find, centuries later, in John chapter 6. How do we, how does the Lord solve this dislocation in our soul? How does discontentment get replaced by gratitude that comes out of the sense of humility? How do we get there? How do we get a humility that births gratitude and confidence that God is really, really out for our best? Well, here in John chapter 6, loved ones, centuries later, a man I came down again from heaven. John 6, 41. Jesus says this, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What is he doing? He's going back to Numbers 11. And he's looking at the Jews and he's saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus says, the, the manna that Moses had, that was good stuff, right? But it was a symbol, just a symbol of a greater bread from heaven. And that is me, and I can, that I can only give you. And so he's looking at the people and he's saying, do you know why your souls are so empty? Do you know why you can't feel happiness about anything? Do you know why nothing satisfies you? It's because you don't have me, the bread from heaven. You don't have this eternal life, this joy and power and love that can fulfill you. If you eat this bread, that I am, and I'm here, guys. I am here. You can touch me and hold me, and I'm here in the flesh now. You'll never have to hunger again. Now imagine you see a woman standing by the ocean, and she has in her hand a cup. And you watch her. She, she takes the cup, and she dips it into the ocean, and then she takes a sip. Now, if you see that, you'll be concerned. Why? Because ocean water is not meant for drinking. Soon she'll get thirstier, and she'll eventually die of dehydration due to the salt in the water. Now, you see, you can play in the water. You can even swim in the water. You can enjoy the view of the water. You can collect shells by the water. But it is never meant to satisfy your thirst. So all the good gifts of the world are just like that. Created for use and enjoyment, not meant to satisfy. And so when God comes over and says, I am the bread, he's saying, you've been trying to dip your cup of your heart into the ocean of all these things. But loved ones, I am here now. You don't have to do that anymore. Come and eat of me and drink of me. A true father reaching out to his children, dying of hunger. I am the true bread. The bread of life, come to me. And what did they do? What did they do? 
when the bread of heaven himself came to them, offering, offering himself to them. What did they do with this invitation? Look at what they did. Look at verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him. Well, things haven't changed. Centuries later, I am the, that he said, I am the bread that came from heaven. Verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? You? You? Aren't you the son of Joseph? Aren't you the carpenter? Give me a break. They despised him. Just like they despised the manna. And that's how Jesus Christ and the gospel has always been treated. See, our problem, loved ones, is not that we despise our circumstance, but deep inside, the reason behind all of this, we don't trust God. The reason we don't, we don't trust God is deep inside, we despise Jesus. If you're finding fault with everything, if you're looking out there, everything's bad or wrong, the Bible tells you because, it's because you and I have despised the true manna of heaven in some way. I despise you because you're the one who made me like this. And I despise you because you allowed these, these circumstances to happen. I despise you because you brought me to this family and this spouse, etc., etc. We despise him. If we're really, really honest, that's our heart. The only reason we're unhappy with everything is because we've despised the true manna. And they despised him. And then he ends up on a cross. And they mock him. They said, you, you, you're supposed to satisfy us? You're not a king. Here's a crown of thorns. They despised him. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected. And, he is, and we esteemed him not. But here's the good news this morning. Here's the good news. Even though I've despised him, the cross tells me he refused to despise me. He is the opposite of the flawmatic. The flawmatic looks past the good and finds fault. He did the opposite. We look past the good and we hate. He looked past our evil and loved. That is the gospel. He refused to despise us despisers. God saw the worst in us and gave us his best. That's the love that breaks the flaw, omatic. It breaks it into pieces. And when I come to the foot of the cross, because it is really hard to be an entitled proud follower of such a humble Christ, and as I come to the foot of the cross and I look at the fact that though I have despised him and though I deserve to be despised by him and he refuses to do that, gratitude fills my heart and because I realize I should have been starved and I should have died because of the despising of my true bread. But instead of despising me, my true bread was broken for me and dislocated for my discontentment so I could be made whole. And until you see him as having been despised for you, until you see him paying for the fact that you and I are disgruntled, discontented, despisers, until you see him paying for that sin, broken, 
and dislocated. Until you see him as that, entitlement cannot be killed and replaced with gratitude. Discontentment cannot be replaced with contentment and joy and patience. And you know what? If I really, really knew how much he's loved me, how much he's refused to despise me, it would even go into the ways I'm a, I would affirm and love people that I tend to despise. See, the gospel gives us humility. It is the gospel we need. It is the bread, the true bread from heaven that he calls us back to eat of. And so as Pastor Scotty Smith says, the bigger your gospel, the gentler your heart, the quicker your repentances, the fewer your gripes, the more your thanks. Let's pray together.